morning, Sun Valley Church, and welcome to The Voice of the Valley. I'm your host, Jeremy Pinch, and today I have both Rick Whitmer and John Schubert with us this morning. It's good to see you guys. Thank good. you. <laughs> it's good to see you too. <laughs> good. I agree with that. Yeah. How is how is everybody doing? Uh, um, yeah, doing well. Well, I can't speak for everybody. Boy, but, yeah, yeah. I was trying I, to figure I, out I, how to answer that one. I, I'm doing well. Such Thank a literalist. But I appreciate your love for the masses. <laughs> yeah. If if you know anything about John Schubert, he takes your words literally. I'm a literalist. He is. What yeah. a great man! And, that and, really and sets by the, the way, stage. That, that applies to our discussion today. I was just thinking that it does. Yeah. The literal hermeneutic yes. method. Yes. Yes. Yes, sir. Is there anything else? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. So last week we talked about, (laughs) last week we talked about the importance of theology uh, and why we take it fairly seriously here at Sun Valley Church. And we did that kind of, kind of as the gateway into our, our topic of our statement of faith. Uh, So this week we're going to look at what we believe starting with the scriptures and if it's okay with you guys, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through our statement here um, on the scriptures, and then we'll come back and just hit some points if that's all right with you guys. Sounds good. Good. So at Sun Valley Church, uh, our statement of faith regarding the Holy Scriptures reads like this. It says, We teach that the Bible is God's written revelation to man, and thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary inspired equally in all parts, Word of God. We teach that the Word of God is an objective propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible in God-breathed. We teach the literal grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture, as John was just talking about, which affirms the belief Uh, that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. We teach that the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We teach that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. We teach that, whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation. The meaning of Scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. Yes. Amen. Amen. Mm, so good. Amen. The Holy Scriptures. Well, first of all, before we start diving into um, uh, just some aspects of this, why do we start in our statement of faith? Why do we start with the Scriptures? Well, because, you know, I, I don't know what the <laughs> the author of the Statement of Faith was thinking. <laughs> I'm not that author. But I would imagine that it's because that is 
the place, the only infallible place that we have knowledge of God or salvation. Sure, and, and of course the option is, because some, some doctrinal statements begin with God, right, right, the doctrine right. of God. Um, why do you think we chose scriptures instead of God? And, and not, uh, I'm not saying one's right or wrong, I'm just saying why do you think we chose that? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, mm-hmm. the doctrine of God or scripture is the, is the in, in terms of most theological statements like this, doctrinal statements like this, they choose one or the other. Right. In fact, most of your systematic theologies start with one or the other. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> why would we choose, Rick, this uh, pattern versus starting with God? Pattern? Yeah, and knowing in our convictions um, as a church, and certainly as the elders of this church, it's because the only place we know God in truth would be His Word. Right. And so we want to begin with what He's said about His revelation so that we can work from the first things and develop our theology from exactly where God wants us to. Yeah. Yeah, we have no other place to start, really. I mean, we, we could yeah. start with God, but then if you think about the logical sequence of that, then you'd be saying, I, I, maybe we wouldn't be, but I would think you would be saying, you know, my perception of God results in mm-hmm. the following. Yeah. It would get awfully dicey if we started with, you know, natural theology and worked our way down and tried to, through some logical process, right. arrive at some scriptures. And But it's just, it's best to start where God does in, he gives us the word. And then Peter, Peter says, uh, you know, in Second Peter 1, that this word is more sure than any experience that we could ever have, no matter how amazing. And he had in mind the transfiguration, which is about as direct of a revelation of God as you're going to get outside of the Bible. Mm. And he says, we have these words that are more sure. And so it's just, it's, it's just where it makes the most sense to us to yeah. begin. Yeah. So our, the very first thing that comes out of our statement of faith says, we teach the Bible as God's written revelation to man. Now, I think most, most evangelicals today would look at the scriptures and say that this is, you know, I'm having an issue. I'm trying to. I need to get here and figure it out, or more like a more like a self help book than anything. Um, so how is how is this point, this aspect of the God's word as His written revelation uh, to man, different from that approach? If that makes sense. Well, I'm not. I'm not certain how all of evangelical um, faith would would think about your question um or i'm not sure certain that most evangelicals maybe they would but i'm not sure of that would see the bible as a self-help collection of writings sure uh i would hope that i would hope for better things from the evangelical community although i've been disappointed before (laughs) yeah and then when you look at i mean when you look at the um i think maybe if you're looking at everybody in the Western world that calls himself Christian, maybe, maybe that would be true of a lot of them. But you're talking about the, the evangelical, the confessing church. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The ones that we would look at and say, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, not just nominal right. You right. Know, people who For don't sure. even believe in the Trinity and yet are calling themselves Christian. And I'm not right. saying there's not help available, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, even for practical things throughout the day. Of course there yeah. is, but it's much more than that, obviously. Yeah. yeah which is why we say what we say in that first line. It's God's written revelation to man. You know, it's it's not a self-help book, but there's a lot of help yeah. for the self. Yeah. Um, it's, it's 
God communicating his purposes, his himself really, mm-hmm. to mankind. And uh, it is a it is a collection of sixty six books, all with the same intent, all with the same direction, which is the glory of God in His revelation of Himself to man. And so I I don't know if that answers your question, Jeremy, but Rick, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, really, the self that it's focused on is God, mm-hmm. God's self disclosure. Mm-hmm. And there have been a number of um, ways of approaching the whole of the Bible, but but one that stands out to me is, you know, as I I read it, it makes the most sense. Is is James Hamilton wrote a big um, explanation of the fact that he said basically when you boil it all down, it comes from Genesis to Revelation about it's God's glory in salvation through judgment. It shows how our holy God, who is revealed to us in the Scriptures, has acted eternally and in time through Jesus Christ to save His people for his own glory, mm-hmm. and he did that through judgment, judgment on sin at the cross of Christ, and then eternal judgment for those who will not believe, yeah. foreshadowed by a number of judgments in time. And so the whole thing is contained in that idea that God is going to be glorified, and that's what we see in the scriptures, and that is a radically unself in our perspective that, that really isn't about us, right. even though we're absolutely part of that story. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's important to, to say that it's not about us, but we are significant players in, in the mm-hmm. whole story. But it is his story, yeah. history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think those are important ways to think about the the revelation of God to man. We're, we're integral to it, but um, God is who he is without us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's actually kind of freeing, right? Because you can look someone dead in the face and go, hey, I've got good news. You are so not the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that actually frees you up to be about something MacArthur much MacArthur said bigger. once, he goes, he goes, you know, the story's not about you. You're inconsequential <laughs> <laughs> about right. the story of God. I yeah. mean, it's, um, but it's hard to think about God without thinking about ourselves. Right. Because we we are the result of his love, we're the mm-hmm. result of his creative genius, and all those things that we've talked about before. So God's revelation is is a revelation of Himself, of His glory, of His might, of His power, of His grace that He extends to us through humans, and we are we're benefactors of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in the in the next line, I guess we say that. Uh, this book is made up of 66 individual books and is given to us by the Holy Spirit that constitutes the plenary word of God. What is it? What does plenary mean? Now, in parentheses, right next to it, it says inspired and equal in all parts. That's what I'm saying it is. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Plenary verbal inspiration. That's it. The whole thing, every single word of it. All of it. Is inspired by God. You know, Jesus says, not one jot or tittle of the law will be um, removed till all is accomplished. And Jesus is hitting at verbal plenary inspiration. And so this this isn't a blog, right? This is this is a, a podcast, so people are listening. And so. just to clearly communicate, it's plenary, not plenary. 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 It's not plain. It's it is plain, but it's not saying plain. Plenarily, I said plenarily. Plenarily, yeah. It's plenary. It's P L E N A. The spelling right? in my brain was yeah. totally awesomely clear. Yeah. So I just, I mean, <laughs> sometimes you need to know how things are spelled, and it's hard to explain Pl- that when you're talking. Plenary. P L E N A. 
N-A-R-Y. Equally inspired in all parts. All of it. John's John's literalist. Equally. He's coming back out. It's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there's no... It, it, does this mean that there's passages that are more important than other passages? Or is D- does the word plenary mean that? It does not mean that, but there are verses that are more important than others. Okay. Is that what, what are you asking? That's what I'm asking. Both. A plenary <laughs> does not mean that. Okay. No. All are inspired, but not all are equally weighted. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. So John 3.16 is more weighted than First Chronicles 1. 1. I don't know. I can't think of First Chronicles one one, but I I would I would venture to guess yes. Okay, so you know, to use an illustration from my sermon when I went back to Leviticus, you know, and I just read Leviticus, and Leviticus fifteen is full of um, cleansing from bodily discharges, and all of those verses are equally inspired. Yet, you use a different example. That's making me uncomfortable. Okay, in Leviticus 18, there's all these unlawful sexual relations and of things that are just, you know, right? But in Genesis 3.15 has what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, which, John, you referred to in your sermon on Sunday. And that verse, the promised seed of the woman, is a thread that is tying the whole scripture. It leads directly to Christ. And, of course, all of scripture, including Leviticus 15 and 18, is on a trajectory to Jesus also. But the rest of scripture isn't necessarily looking back in the same way to Leviticus 15 as it is to Genesis 3.15. And I think that's kind of what John's getting at when he says that there are some verses and parts of the Bible that have more gravity in the light of the rest of Revelation and yet all of them are equally inspired, just equally equally scripture and equally exactly what God intended them to be. And all all are part of the story, which is an yeah. important reality. In other words, we couldn't dismiss some of those verses in Leviticus 15 and 18 and have the whole story. Yeah. They're all equally valuable to the story because that's the story. You can't take out Act 1 yeah. you know, or Act 18. You've got to you got to include the entire story, but certain aspects of Act Act Seven are more weighty to the story than certain parts of Act Eighteen. Okay. And, it, and Jesus treated the scripture that way. He he, did. he said to the Pharisees, "You're you're tithing your herbs and spices, but then ignoring the weightier matters of the law." Hmm. And yet the herbs and spices were part of the law and part of God's standard of holiness for Israel. So Jesus didn't say, "Hey, well, d- don't worry about the spices." He says, "No, to keep doing that, but do the weightier stuff too." Hmm. So you take all of God's word for what it is, and then you give gravity and emphasis where God emphasizes. Hmm. Okay, and that plays out in the church too. You know, as, as, as we think about the New Testament and how the church ought to apply the scriptures in the New Testament, there are weightier things in the New Testament even that we need to pay special attention to as a church, like church government, hmm. like the preaching of the word, you know, are, are more weighty than other parts of the New Testament instruction to the church. Mm-hmm. So. And yet we have to do okay. all of it, right? Right. So there you go. Including washing feet. Your feet, <laughs> which you can do yourself. <laughs> Why'd you bring feet into it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That was the first thing that came to my mind. You all set the stage with Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we talk about this idea of a, a historical uh, or a literal grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture. Uh, walk us through what this means, because later on in 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 our uh, statement of faith towards the end, 
Uh, it says the meaning of scripture is to be found as one diligently applies this approach of interpretation. So, right. so what is what is? This? Let me take literal, and Rick, you can pick up the grammatical historical, uh, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Literal uh, sometimes gets a bad rap. Uh, oh, you guys are just so literal, you know, or whatever the accusation might be. A better way to understand, it, I think, is by using the word natural and uh, to. to to be the basis of an interpretation method. So it, it, when, when you read about um, being under the wings of God, a literal, um, a person who's concerned about literal interpretation would say, see, there you go again. You're saying God has wings. No, <laughs> uh, we're saying the natural interpretation of this would be not to interpret it that God has wings, but that he protects his people like a chicken who has wings. Mm. And those, those are the, the you know, words like simile. It's similar to or like something. When you like, when you read through Revelation and John's struggling to uh, explain what God looks like on his throne, he keeps using that word like. Ezekiel has the same the same approach. It looked like something that was in a circle. It looked like an ant, and that those are signals to us who who embrace this literal grammatical historical method of interpretation that this isn't literal. It's natural. We got to take it naturally. It's it's an explanation of something different or other or strange. God doesn't have wings. Um, he's a spirit. And so, okay. does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in the, the that plays into the grammatical historical part, where you God actually chose some words and put them in a certain order, and He didn't choose other words. And so that's that's one of the reasons we use the English Standard Version, um, and we we definitely prefer other. Um, what are called literal translations, not that any English translation gets word for word the order that the originals does, but there is word for word faithfulness to a translation rather than uh, kind of a big picture. You know, here's the idea behind this sentence, but we took liberty with the wording. No, we don't want to take liberty with the wording because God chose those specific words. We want to pay attention to the grammar because he, in the tense, that he chose the word order, the relationship of words to each other within the original writings. That's why we have to study that stuff is because God actually means to communicate something through it, which is why Jesus goes down to the level of the jot and tittle in Matthew, you know, 5.18. And and so must we. And when we understand that and understand what those particular words were conveying in their original context, what was going on in Israel uh, when Moses gave Deuteronomy, when God gave Deuteronomy through Moses, while they were getting ready to go across the Jordan into the promised land. We need to understand the message of Deuteronomy in light of their historical circumstance so that we can understand what Deuteronomy is teaching accurately. Then we can apply it to today, but only after we've grasped it Well, you were kind of trying to explain that in the last sermon you preached about Old and New Covenant. Yeah. A little Mm -hmm. bit of that historical perspective of the Scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, So, but I, I think we need to say that we're not saying that the, the living Bible is useless or worthless. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, definitely not. No, we're not saying that. We, we think we ought to study and preach out of certain translations like the ESV mm-hmm. because of its mm-hmm. you know close accuracy um, and you're not perfect word-for-word association, Yeah, but, but a closer accuracy. Um, but again, there is there's great usefulness to the living Bible. Mm-hmm. For example... 
something you hand to somebody on the street. Uh, maybe better served to use a living translation versus the ESV or the NASV mm. or the King James. So there's there's certainly value and maybe a, a, a devotional aspect of those uh, those translations that are not so word for word associated uh, is beneficial. You know when when you're thinking about you know I want to read the Psalms um, in a way that that really grips my heart. Maybe the New Living Translation would be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I I'll, I consult those translations every time I study to preach. I do too because it speaks to us in our. Uh, vernacular, yeah, right. And it can help you get the emotion of a text exactly in a sense of it better than right. the others. But so. if you're if you're if you're looking for the meaning yeah. of the text, you you are better served by a little more a literal mm-hmm. translation. And there's a spectrum there, right? You know, all the way from one end would be like the New American Standard is almost wooden. Yeah, they call it the not actually spoken Bible. Back yeah. at Bible college, that's what right. the NASB means. My kids <laughs> called it the Yoda Bible. <laughs> yeah. So I guess true that is. <laughs> and then on the other end, the, the New Living or the or the Message Bible or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So you guys have both gone through Bible college, seminary. Um, now you in those courses you've, or in those, in those studies, you've gone through a course on hermeneutics where it, it breaks it down, you know, step by step of, you know, where you start, where you go next, how you get to the application. What are some, what are some steps that people could take, uh, as they are trying to be faithful in this, in this approach to interpreting scripture? Well, before we go there, we need to make, uh, uh, the people know that Jeremy's within a week or two of, Graduating from his own Bible college. Ooh, yes. And with a degree. Yeah. It's exciting stuff, Jerry. Really Congratulations. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so why don't you answer the questions? Yep. Yeah. There you, you go. paid attention in class. I fell yeah, asleep. The mic, I fell no. asleep in that course. So. Dude, it well, was you a thought video it was a cooking course. class, right? Yeah, I'm sure you rewound it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and actually, and for full disclosure, I, I didn't do seminary proper. I did. I was at a university, too. But so I just, I just have to be honest. So answering your question is, um, yes, you could do that. (laughs) We want to, we want to be paying attention to the details. That's one thing that people can do. Just one the better, the best thing you can do for your own personal Bible study is observe. Um, Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary, um, when he was in his work on teaching people how to read the Bible, he used to say that uh, the more you observe well, the less you have to supply in interpretation and the more accurate you're going to apply the word. Because mm-hmm. those are three steps of Bible study, observation, interpretation, and application. If you're really skimping on your observation, you're not paying very close attention to the text, you got to do a lot of, you know, fill in the gaps with your own interpretive work, and then you're going to end up at a less accurate place, mm-hmm. and you're not going to live out faithfully what that text is requiring of you. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and I think that's so important because the observation part of Bible study is a, a larger portion of the process mm-hmm. because you're you're trying to figure out what the author's intent is. And that you, you get to that by observing who he's talking to, what he's talking about, you know, the the, the emphasis of his conversation or his writing. Uh, and those things help you come to a place of interpretation. Then you cross the uh, the barrier, so to speak, between Old Testament and current times, yep. or New Testament and current times, 
by applying that interpretation to our current circumstances, yeah. to our context. Mm-hmm. And some some uh, commentaries will do that for you. Yeah. They'll do it well. Yep. That's yeah. where a devotional commentary can be super handy. Yeah. Because it, it says, here's what we need to do. The, the Gospel Transformation Bible, as a study Bible, aims to do exactly that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's then the New, new, inter, what is it? new International Version Commentary, the NIV uh, application commentary mm-hmm. that does that, you know, particularly. Um, but observation is so critical, which is why people do word studies. Mm-hmm. So you, you're trying to figure out what is he saying? What does this word mean? What did it mean to the listeners who first heard it or read it? Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to begin. And that's part of the observation process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the who, what, when, where, why questions, you know, we learn in elementary school, um, basically trying to figure out. Can you explain what this author is saying? What does he mean by what he's saying? And what difference does it make? Because yeah. all of Scripture, including the passages that seem so obscure to us, and like, what relevance does this have? Every, that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he says all Scripture is useful. Every single part of it. So we just, some, <laughs> is more easy to figure out how it leads to righteousness. But all of it does. Yeah. So going from there, we teach that the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. So how does that, how does that tie into, um, I guess, first of all, what does that mean? And how does that tie into what we just talked about? Do we know what infallible means? Do we what is, what does infallible mean? We'll start there. Um, well, it's, it's broader than without error. Um, but, but it's in the same category as without error. It's, it's infallible in the way it speaks about faith and practice. There's, there's nothing wrong with what it says about how to come to faith in Christ. There's nothing wrong in Scripture, no matter where you go, that would lead you astray mm. when you're talking about how to have your sins forgiven, mm. how to encounter a, a God of love personally. It's infallible, no matter what you do, no matter where you go. There's not conflict. It's, mm. it's right every time. And that's a little bit broader than without error, inerrancy. There, yeah. it's, it's obviously a lot you know, similar, but it's a little bit different. And the faith and practice part, I think, is also critical. It's, it's, we're not saying that, that the Bible is a, a diagnostic manual for medicine, we're not saying that, or for science, or for astrology. I mean, but we are saying whatever it speaks to those things, it's accurate. Hmm. We're just saying it's not written as a science journal or a medicine journal. And it's speaking about faith and practice, how to come to faith in Christ, how to be right with God, how to live out that faith, how to live out a life that would reflect that relationship with God. Yeah. It's, it's infallible in faith and practice, applying yeah. the faith yeah. in life. Yeah. yeah, so one way to think about it is everything it teaches is true. That's infallibility. And every detail in how it gets there is accurate. And so when Joshua you know, records that the sun stood still, um, well, we know scientifically the sun is always still. But that wasn't Joshua's point. From his perspective, which you could call earth perspective, earth standard perspective, ESP, um, <laughs> it did look like the sun stood still. Because from our perspective, it looks like the sun's moving. Right. Well, you know, and right. so, but really when we understand it, 
it's not being inaccurate. We're understanding it for what it is. Yeah. It's it's called phenomenological language, right? It's it's showing a phenomena from a particular perspective. When really what happened was God, it, I think, probably stopped the earth in its rotation for a day. Okay. But we don't have a problem with the text. Everything it's saying on its own terms, and that's where John's natural interpretation comes in, is accurate. Yeah. But if the earth were to stop rotating for one day, that would cause some serious geological problems. So how do we explain that? Um, I don't... Let me well, say, well you heard John Kerry. There is climate change, my friend. And who knows? It could have come from that. Yeah. Well, that's why all the dinosaurs died in, in that day. Joshua. That, that, that was the end of the dinosaurs. <laughs> oh. No. So seriously, though, how do we, t- how do we explain that kind of stuff? Because there, there are phenomena, as mm-hmm. you said, mm-hmm. that take place in Scripture that is impossible. Mm-hmm. Like the earth stopped spinning. If the earth stopped spinning for ten, for five seconds, one second, we would all die. Yeah, and, and that's where I think hmm. we might explain it that way. I'm not saying that is what happened. I'm saying well, from Joshua's Well, if it did, what would have to be our conclusion? That God sustained life through it, right? That God sustained life through it. Exactly. Yeah. Based exactly. on our current scientific knowledge, it, it seems like he stopped the earth from spinning and then prevented these things miraculously. Because either way, it was a miracle. It was That's God, my point. God intervening in human history in a way that doesn't happen otherwise. Right. That's the definition of miracle. Yeah. And so we have a God stopping the spinning of the planet or somehow extending the hours of the planet. I don't know how, yeah. whatever, it happened because it's written and we believe it. Right. But it, it's not out of the realm of possibility because God created the planet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can do what he wants with it. He, yep. If he wants to slow it down or stop it, he can and still sustain life on it. Yeah. It's what we, one of the things that kind of identify Christians is we believe. Yeah. Right? right. <laughs> we believe certain things. We, we believe in miracles. We believe that Jesus walked on water. That's impossible. Mm-hmm. We believe that the Jordan split apart as well as the Red Sea. We yeah. believe, here's one, that God created something out of nothing. Yeah. I think he can manage this this extended hours of the sun. Yeah. Because why? He's the creator. Mm-hmm. And this is what Christians do. We believe those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My wife and I were having a discussion about some doctrine the other day, and she asked me a question about something I believe. And I said, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. This, this, this one particular aspect of this doctrine is probably the biggest hurdle for me. I don't know how to get around it, but I believe it because it's in the text. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's God resolves it some way. Mm-hmm. I just don't get it. But, I, but because of the natural grammatical historical method of interpretation, in all integrity, I'm, 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 I have to believe this. And... That's okay. Like we can afford to say those things because God, our comprehension of something doesn't challenge the truth of God's clarity. And I think there's a good ex- illustration in the particular illustration, the particular story you told about the sun standing still, in terms of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said it could have been God stopped the planet from spinning, but also it could have been something else that happened. Yeah. In the in those few hours. Mm-hmm. We don't know what that was, but here's my point. There are parts of scripture that are hard to interpret, yeah. hard to understand exactly what happened in the moment, mm. exactly what was meant by what was written. 
that's okay. That doesn't mean you're you're unorthodox because right. I would disagree with, you know, some Bible teacher on a matter of this or that. Yeah, I, I have the freedom to do that as as we all do mm-hmm. as Christians, but we need to be careful that our interpretive methods fall underneath that particular paradigm right. that we're discussing right now. Yep. So there are good Christian scholars mm-hmm. who disagree on important matters in Scripture. Yes. And it's okay. Yeah, because all of them are within the bounds of orthodoxy. Yes. It's when we, it, and none of what constitutes heresy, which is compromising the person, um, the the triunity of God, the deity of Christ, compromising the gospel, God has been remarkably clear on everything in that category. Mm-hmm. So there is nothing there that any of those scholars who disagree on other details don't agree on. Right. So we're talking about secondary things. Yeah. And those things are open to discussion. Yeah. Even though we use the same methodology at getting there. Mm-hmm. And that there's hundreds of examples of that yeah. in Christendom. Yeah. So, yeah. So we'll end here um, on this idea of dual authorship. Uh, John, you hit on this quite a bit as we're going through as we're going through Psalm uh, 119. Um, what what is what is dual authorship, and how do we how do we kind of reconcile that with with uh, people who who can't get a grasp on the idea of God speaking through man and man using language uh, and not being without error, right? Because we're fallible human beings. It would seem that we would make errors in in our writings and in that. So dual authorship doesn't mean two guys writing about the same thing. That's I, not is that not what you're saying. What I, are you? I don't. I don't think so. Okay. Why don't you explain dual authorship for our audience? Uh, well, uh, according to our uh, uh, statement of faith, uh, the Holy Spirit superintended uh, the writing of Scripture through human beings. Through so the author, the two, the two authors there, since it's dual, yeah. is. God, God, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, yes, and the human author, yeah, whoever, yeah, all right, Moses, John. So we're trying to rectify how God can use fallible man to write infallible scripture. Yeah, right, right, yeah. It's called inspiration, right? There's boom. You have the text there in First Peter. (laughs) Yeah, read Uh, it. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Second Peter one. Second Peter uh, twenty. Uh, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So there we go. we got human authors, right? Forty or so of them. Um, all of them have something in common. Um, they're sinful, right? And they they err, and, they're, and they make mistakes yeah. in their lives. And yet, they also all have something in common, is that when they wrote the books of Scripture— the Holy Spirit was doing it through them in a unique way so that these fallible men, all still being who they are with their own personalities, with their own characteristics, their own styles of writing, you know, they come through in their writings. And yet, because the Holy Spirit is the one doing it in concert with them, because he is perfect, you see, one of these things is not like the others, <laughs> the yeah. Holy Spirit, because he is perfect, the result is an infallible, inerrant, perfect scripture, exactly what God intended, not polluted by the human contribution. So is there dictation going on? 
Sometimes, right, we have record that some, like part of Jeremiah was dictated directly. Uh, thus mo- says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Moses um, sometimes heard God's voice and wrote it down word for word. But this statement doesn't mean that all of Scripture was dictated through right. these men because you just said yeah. God used their personality. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So if God's using my personality, he's not dictating my sermons. Right. Or dictating the Scriptures through these men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so Paul, at the beginning of... Um, I don't know if it's First Corinthians or Second, but he says, "I don't remember. I don't think I baptized anybody." And then it, you can almost see Sylvanus off to the side saying, "No, you baptized this guy," because in parentheses Paul goes, "Oh, I, I did baptize that one, but beyond that, I can't remember if I baptized anybody else." <laughs> if I did, it doesn't matter. It, it, yeah, that is so human, right? And yet that's Scripture because right. the Holy Spirit was yeah. carrying Paul along in that process. Yeah. It's it the the best analogy that we have from Scripture itself would be the incarnation of Christ. We have a fallible human person, Mary, okay, who's who's sinful, and yet the Holy Spirit conceives Jesus in her womb. And because Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, even though he's born with a human nature, um, he is sinless. He's the Holy Son of God. It's and, safe to assume this isn't a Catholic podcast by what you just said. I mean, I'm going to come right out and say it. This is not a Catholic podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mary was sinful. <laughs> yeah. For the Bible tells me so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so it's safe to say that here at Sun Valley Church, we take God's word pretty seriously. Yeah, you could, you could leave the pretty part out. Pretty. We take it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> well, church, I hope that this has been a uh, encouraging time for you. Uh, and if you haven't read through the Statement of Faith, we would... Um, ask you to do that. It's a it's a great reminder uh, for those who have been here at Sun Valley Church for a while, and for those who are new uh, and want to know more about what we believe, um, you can go there and, and find out. On uh, our website. On our website, yep. yeah. So, we love you, church. We look forward to being with you next week as we talk about the Trinity, or God the Father. God the Father, I believe. I think, I think Trinity. 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 We're going to be talking about either Trinity or God the Father. The host of the podcast will let us know. We'll 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 figure yes. it out on the fly. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> yeah. Wait, what? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>